0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather, do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called as, while free, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that in which he was called. Father, we acknowledge this as your holy word this morning, inspired, brought by your Spirit, as written down uh, through the voice of the Apostle Paul. We acknowledge these things, and we ask now that your blessing would come upon us as we read and study. That, Lord, we may have ears to hear words spoken. We ask now for hearts to receive what our ears hear and that this would go beyond simple uh, understanding. Father, I pray what only Your Spirit can do this morning. I pray for revelation for each one of us in the auditorium today. May we hear You. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. If you don't have your Bible already open there, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to kind of chew our way through this a little bit. What's cool about this is it's a little different. The last few Sundays, last week I wasn't here, but the one before that and the one before that, we've had some pretty pointed discussions. Uh, What Paul brought to the church at Corinth, especially regarding sexual immorality in the world and specifically in the church at Corinth, is as much a problem for the church today as it was for the church in the first century. And we talked about those things. And and perhaps you were uncomfortable by that, whether because you don't like hearing words like sexual in church or because you struggle with these things yourself. Well, that was very pointed, very biblical, and, and I believe, obviously, what the Lord wanted for us because that's where we were. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, and especially in this section, it's not so much pointed, at least it hasn't seemed that way to me, This last week. It's it's felt more like something we need to chew on and digest and take in and understand. So let's chew on this together. I want to start by sharing with you that the National Park Service has sent out an advisory warning for park visitors in Glacier National Park and other Rocky Mountain parks to be alert for bears. You've probably read about recent bear attacks, things going on. And to take precautions to avoid a bear encounter if you happen to be hiking or moving through the national parks. There's a pamphlet out that advises hikers to wear little bells on their clothing. Seems a bit extreme, but that's what it says. So that bears can hear them from a distance and not be startled if you're out hiking uh, by someone accidentally sneaking up on them. They say that even docile bears have been known to charge if, if they're surprised. They also advise visitors to carry pepper spray in case of a bear encounter, saying that spraying pepper in the air, not that you're going to pepper spray a, a bear in the face, but in the air will cause their sensitive noses to, to recoil and, and perhaps to turn the other way. It's also a good idea, while hiking, to uh, keep watch, watch watch for fresh bear droppings. Uh, you can kind of even recognize the kind of bear that might be in the area just by noting what they call a black bear and grizzly bear scat. This can be helpful, I guess. Now, for your information, black bear droppings tend to be smaller and contain berries, leaves, and possibly bits of squirrel fur. Grizzly bear droppings tend to contain little bells and smell like pepper. So that's how... You know the difference. (laughs) The first time I heard that joke was in late June of 2002. It's really one of the few jokes in my life that I can pinpoint where I first heard it. Because Cheryl and I were visiting a little Calvary Chapel in Bishop, California while vacationing at her parents' home. And we were in the midst of of quite a bit of conversation. The bear joke was the first thing I remember the pastor saying, and there was something else a bit more profound, a bit more personal that I remember as well. At that time in our life, it was the fourth summer since we had moved up from California, up here to Washington, the Anacortes area. We moved up here because I felt led to serve alongside my brother, Ron, at Fidalgo Community Church in Anacortes back at that time. And very few people knew that the Lord had made it clear to me, and I'm talking within about three months of moving up here, the Lord made it clear that that it was a short-term deal. And I really struggled with that. It wasn't because of problems between my brother and I or or what was happening to that church. It was just, you're here to help, but you're going to go on from here somewhere else. Well, I had just uprooted my family. I had just moved Cheryl and the kids up here. We bought a house. We were here to settle in and I thought this was, this was the deal and, and it was so clear to me that it wasn't that I, I was, I was really stressed about it. So three years into this ministry and into this work, three years later, now I'm sitting in Calvary Chapel Bishop and I'm wondering when I'm supposed to go and where I'm supposed to go and, and what is going to happen next. At that point, I felt already like I was being released from that particular ministry. And I was saying, Lord, why? What? That very morning, as we drove through the sleepy little town, Cheryl and I talked about it. And we arrived at Calvary Chapel Bishop, a, a little storefront, very small uh, group of people there. And I remember on the drive and in that conversation, feeling anxious. Lord, when? Where? What? What? Show us. Well, it was really nice to be an unknown visitor at church. It's not often I get to do that and we came in and there were probably 30 40 maybe 50 people in this in this room wandering in their coffee and settling down and then a guy got up there with a with an old beat up acoustic guitar he had a beard and long hair you know a leftover hippie from the 60s i mean it's calvary chapel right and he started playing songs and i loved it we sang old maranatha praise choruses you know for like 45 minutes <laughs> And then he set down his guitar and stood up and picked up a Bible. Well, the pastor was the worship leader. I don't know what church would do that. <laughs> so glad Rachel's here. Let's tell you. And so I began to listen as this bearded, long-haired, pot-bellied, flannel-shirted, hippie-leftover, down-to-earth pastor was just preaching the word. It was so refreshing. He was just preaching the word. You see, I was at that time, at that season in my life, in the place of thinking that every week I had to come up with a new topic. Something that would stir hearts and minds. And it was very stressful for me as a pastor because I had no idea what people were bringing to the table. I didn't know what people were going to walk in with on a Sunday morning. How in the world am I supposed to meet everybody where they are? I had yet to fall into the grace of God to just teach through the Bible. And so, sitting there listening to him just pre-story, he was in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I remember that. He's talking about the role and the characteristics of elders in a church, as Paul would tell Timothy in that chapter. Saying, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, etc. And I'm listening to the list, and I've heard the list so many times, and I'm, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. And, and then He paused. And this pastor looked straight at Cheryl and I. And we're sitting about in the third row, right in front here. And, and he looked right at us and he said, By the way, you may be feeling anxious about God's will for your life. He said, Listen, when God is ready for you to go, He'll tell you. Otherwise, just stay put until He does. I was shocked. I I, I was stunned. Cheryl went. (laughs) Gave me the elbow. And and then the pastor just snapped right back into the list. Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious. I'm, I'm like, I don't even want to know what pugnacious is. What just happened here? I'm in the midst of this season, and I received what I believe to be, and still believe to this day to be, a direct answer from God. And so against my nature, we stayed put. See, I was going to go back from this vacation and start floating resumes. I was going to start pursuing this because I had to help God out a little bit with the future design of my life. I probably you know, needed to move on some things and He was just waiting around for me. That was my mentality. But we came back up to Anacortes and God made it clear, stay put and wait. I will show you. And for the first time in my ministry life, I didn't put out a resume. I got contacted by a church, kind of out of the blue, back down in California that was interesting and then a year later just over a year God called and this fellowship began and I have said before it was nothing that I was looking to do I was not in the mood to plant another church I did not want to I didn't think that was even on the radar God said stay put remain where you are I'll show you when there's time to make a change. I I was reminded of that because as I read Paul's writing this morning, I think, you know, sometimes, sometimes we just want a change of scenery. We think if things are not settled or comfortable or going the way we want them to go in the life that we're living right now, that we just need to change it. And then it'll all get better. And you know as well as I do that the problems, the stresses, the difficulties, they just come right with you. If the Lord's not in the midst of that, change. So we seek a change of address, a change of hands, to change up, change the channel. Some talk about winds of change. Others promise hope and change. Some just want to change the subject. But change for the sake of change, get this, is nothing more than loose change. It's never quite enough. You know, for those of you who still actually use tangible dollars and cents, and you stand at the counter and they say it's, it's 11.67 and you pull out 11 bucks and invariably you have 66 cents. Or 65 cents. Loose change, it's never enough. And that's so often what change is in our lives. It's loose, it's random, we think we're doing something good, moving on, making it work, and all the while, God is saying, hey, Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and will not faint. Wait on the Lord. It is is a, a promise of God and it is a pattern of God that He established from early on. And if you look at all of the men and women of Scripture, look at how they waited and learn from that. Because in the waiting, we so often will hear the Spirit of God. In Jesus Christ, listen, in Jesus, it's not loose change that matters, it's calling. It's calling. One of the Corinthians' problems was their insistence on conditional social positional change. They were experiencing a new thing the Spirit of God. They were experiencing this, this call to Christianity, to follow Jesus. They were excited about it. And so they started saying, we gotta do all kinds of things to shore this up. And so married believers must cease all conjugal relations, if not outright divorce one another so that there's no sex going on at all in a marriage. Gotta make that change. Well, that was not from God. But some were prescribing it. Unmarried believers were being forbidden to marry by some. I mean, they had written to Paul saying, obviously, verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. To which I vehemently disagree. It's good for a man not to touch a woman who's not his wife. But it's okay to touch your wife. We've already talked about that, so I won't go back there. But what was ironic about this, while they were forbidding marriage and they were even forbidding sexual contact in marriage... At the same time at Corinth, sexual immorality was running rampant. So obviously, the external changes didn't do a whole lot. Weren't really making a difference. And while they debated food, sacrifice to idols, and they elevated the more obvious, the more uh, manifest spiritual gifts, they were skimming the surface, as so often we can do in the natural man, the natural woman. Skim the surface. God calls us to something that's deep and rich and profound and we go skirting off the top of the pond like a, a stone that's been skinned. It's calling. It is calling that makes all the difference in the world. Chew on this with me. Walk through this. Verse 17, Paul says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. Now he is just told the unbelieving spouse or, or the believing spouse to stay married to the unbelieving spouse. He's saying that that's key. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, Paul says, let him leave, but it's better if you can stay, because who knows, but that the unbelieving spouse is going to find Jesus and become saved because of your faith, as he talks to the believer. And so from that position, he says, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. Stay put. Don't bail on the marriage, because you think, now i got to do this new thing. Don't change for the sake of change. Note he says this, and I love it. He says, As the Lord has assigned. Well, Clark just got up at the beginning of communion and said, Do you ever wonder if you're called to be a disciple? Do you ever wonder about your assignment as, as a disciple? Let me tell you something. You are on assignment from God if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And there is no exception. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are on assignment. Now, you may not know what that assignment is. You may have missed it. You may not have waited to hear from God about it. But I can tell you, I can promise you, if you are a Christian, you are on assignment. From the living God. You are on assignment. It may not look like what you expect or what you think. doesn't mean you have to up and move to El Salvador, or although some do. But you are on assignment. And the Apostle here is saying you are to walk as the called. And if you are called, you are assigned. And if assigned, you have a reason for being on this planet. And if you don't know what that is, I would advise you strongly to start asking God. Don't ask me, I don't have a clue what you're supposed to do. But start asking the Lord, okay Lord, if I'm on assignment, what is it? What are you showing me? What do you want me to do? By the way, the Apostle here also gives a global church directive. He says, so I direct in all the churches. So this wasn't just for Corinth. In fact, this word, and I love the fact that he does this. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and note this. He says in verse 2, To the church of God which is at Corinth... To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, this letter to Corinth is a letter to you today. All who call on the name are to receive this letter And Paul directs in all the churches, here's the standard. This is for everybody. It's not just for Corinth. Were you married when you were called? Stay married. And remain conjugal. Were you unmarried? Hey, be content. Does that mean I can never marry? No, it doesn't mean you can't marry. It just means be content where you are right now until the Lord calls, until the Lord directs, until He shows you. What is next? But don't stress over it. Don't worry about it. Oh, man, I'm approaching 20. I've got to find somebody. Whoa! Wait on the Lord. Be content. Because a change of heart doesn't automatically require a change of scenery. Just walk as you were called. Walk as you were called. The Apostle uses that word, by the way, eight times in the passage. Called. Kaleo. Kaleo in the Greek, and this is interesting, we hear the word called and sometimes words like that can become almost religious. It's a Christian word. I'm among the called. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means I'm called. Great. What does that mean? Well, we Christians know. Okay. What's it mean? It means to be invited. Kaleo is an invitation. It's it's to summon or to invite. And that's who Jesus' people are. We are the invited. Well, that doesn't sound quite as spiritual as the called, Rick. I know. I love it. We're just invited people. I think about Charlie Brown dancing a jig as he got an invitation to Violet's Halloween party. You know, and the, and the little background music starts up and he starts to dance. I got an invitation to a Halloween party. And, and Lucy, of course, says, Well, your name must have been on, put on the wrong list. Oh. And the smile goes to a frown instantaneously. Listen, God is not like that. He doesn't make lists for his invitation. Contrary to some, even in Christian faith, he does not invite some and reject others. God's invitation is universal. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. Between the called and those who would not understand that they have been called, the difference is those who RSVP yes to the invitation. That's it. And then you are SVP. Yes, you say, I received the invitation of the Lord. I accept that. And boom, His Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're born again. Life changes. You see things you didn't know before. The veil is lifted. You enter into a completely new life. The life you were created for. And all you had to do was say yes to the invitation. And suddenly now you are the called. The invited ones. The ecclesia. You see, the word kaleo is also uh, closely related to another form of the word, which is klesis, which is called or calling, and the ekklesia are the called out. We've talked about this recently, the the called assembly, or the assembly of the called, and this morning I would just point out to you, we're just the, the assembly of the invited. You're here this morning because you were invited to be here. That's the called. Now, what's wonderful about this and the beauty of God's calling in every culture of this entire age, across the ages, the calling of God from Jesus Christ forward in these 2,000 years is two words. Think about this. It is indigenous and it is incarnational. The invitation, the calling of God is indigenous. That is native to country or culture. What does that mean? It means God didn't send angels with the Great Commission. He sent people. He sent people to people. People who are like-minded. People who look similarly. Who are in a same culture. Which means the calling of God on an American and the calling of God on an Iranian is still the calling of God. The calling of God on an El Salvadorian is the same as the calling of God on an American. And indigenous work, indigenous ministry, and this is big in missions too, really getting to the people in a culture that it becomes indigenous in that culture. Because it's better received than when an outsider comes in. Think about this, if God had had blanketed the world with angels and the message of the Great Commission. First of all, we'd all be freaking out. But secondly, we'd be like, well, yeah, but how do they really know what we need? I mean, look at them all bright, shining, and glorified. and, And here I am in the flesh. How can they really understand me? God calls indigenously. And get this, incarnationally. In other words, as Jesus came as the incarnate God, the incarnation of God, God didn't just send people to people. He called people who bear His Spirit to go to people. Incarnational ministry. That you don't walk around proclaiming Jesus in and of yourself. You do it by His Spirit. Who in all things proclaims and glorifies Jesus. So incarnationally we have His Spirit in this calling. And indigenously we're just people like anybody else. Bringing the calling of God. Jesus said in John seventeen eighteen, Praying to the Father He said, As you sent Me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Incarnational calling. Sounds like a big deal, incarnational calling, but it's very simple. You have accepted the invitation and now you're taking the invitation to your next door neighbor. Indigenously and incarnationally. Now, to further explain this, Paul continues on and he contrasts the spiritual of our calling with the superficial misunderstanding of the people at Corinth and I fear sometimes us as well. He gives two striking examples. Example number one circumcision. Verse 18. Was a man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Now, Wednesday night we read that verse as we were passing by and I made a comment. I don't even know how to do that. Go from circumcised to uncircumcised. I mean, that is Paul must just be kind of Joking around here, he wasn't. Josephus tells us there was a medical procedure to reverse circumcision. Now, without being too graphic, in fact, I'm not going to describe it at all. But, back in 186 B.C., some Jews were reversing their circumcision because they were fearful of the reign of terror of Antiochus Epiphanes, that Greek ruler who was coming down hard on Jerusalem, and wiping out Jews and trying to establish his authority over the temple and over the city and over the country. And so there were Jews becoming uncircumcised so that they couldn't be seen as being Jewish and therefore could save their lives. By the second century, there's a Greek philosopher whose name was Celsus. Celsus was uh, an an anti-Christian philosopher wrote against the church but he described this process of becoming uncircumcised in detail. Why would Paul even reference this and why were Jews doing this in the Hellenistic culture? Because they wanted to be part of the Hellenistic culture. They're thinking, you know, I'd like to enjoy the modern amenities of the bathhouses but I can't go into a bathhouse circumcised because everybody will know I'm a Jew. So if I could become uncircumcised, then I can move about in culture and in the bathhouses and the gyms and places where I might be (laughs) seen, I can move about and no one would know that in reality I'm Jewish and they endured this process which was a painful, difficult process to remove all physical evidence of their Jewishness. Do we Christians try that hard to look like culture? Do we seek to be, as it were, unbaptized so that culture doesn't really know we are of Christ? In certain social settings with certain groups of people, do you find yourself going, ah, I'm, I'm going I'm to shut that down for a while because I don't want to be embarrassed and I don't want to have to give a reason for the calling that is on my life? Well, there were Jews that were doing that, becoming uncircumcised. Of course, the opposite problem was true in the early church as well. There were Jewish believers who were pressuring Gentile believers to become circumcised. Gotta be circumcised if you're if you're really of the faith. And they didn't reject Jesus in this, and they weren't rejecting the, the Messiah and the, the gospel and all the truth coming with it. They were just saying, in addition, you need to be circumcised, or you're not really part of the deal. Paul says, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, while the Gentile is saying hallelujah to this, to the Jew, this would be both highly offensive and contradictory. At the same time. Circumcision is nothing, Paul says. Nothing? My friends, circumcision was not only something, it was everything to the Jew. To the Jewish man, that was the mark of the covenant with Abraham and all the blessings of God. That was, that was the proof that he was on the inside, that he was part of this whole thing. It was everything to the Jew. And for, for Paul to say this is nothing was absolutely offensive, even to a Jewish Christian. What are you saying, Paul? You're telling me that the singular sign of the Abrahamic covenant is nothing. And beyond that, you're saying, but we have to keep the commandments of God. Well, isn't that a contradiction? You're saying that circumcision is nothing? How can he, in those same sentence, nullify circumcision and say we must keep the commandments? Is not circumcision commanded by God? What are you about, Paul? Paul was not the first to talk about this. That is the spiritual obedience to God trumping or over the, the superficial works. Spiritual obedience to the Father is always greater than the superficial work. Because you know, you can work the work and not be in obedience to God. You can do the things, you can check the boxes, and your heart is not really with Him or in it tends to make you grumpy. You know? There are the people who are going to vacuum the church with Jesus. It's just fantastic that I get to do this, you know. That's the work. But there's nothing spiritually obedient about it. And there were people being circumcised painfully because they thought, well, I've got to do the work. But their heart wasn't there. And again, Paul wasn't the first to say that circumcision is nothing when it comes to spirituality. Actually, you can go all the way back to a prophet named Shmuel. Samuel. 1 Samuel 15.22, he said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, you might say, well, I thought sacrifice was obedience. Not if your heart isn't in it. Not if it's not a decision of the heart. Not if it's not coming from your spirit. If you're just going through the motions, it is nothing. Circumcision then is nothing. Baptism is nothing if you're just going through the motions. By the way, that's why we encourage people to be baptized by your own choice and not by a parent's choice as an infant. Because then it's your choice. Then it's your heart. Then it's your decision. David understood this. Psalm fifty one sixteen. In the midst of the throes of his of his big sin, murderous, adulterous sin, when he realizes all that took place, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. Samuel got it. David understood it. And Paul now declares that it is about your heart, not about your behavior. Hey, the behavior will flow from the heart. But if the behavior is circumstantial and superficial, you are not truly in obedience to God. You know what that tells me? We have a God who wants it to be real. Don't play games with me, he would say. Don't mess around with this. If there is no heart behind the behavior, the behavior is worthless. What did Jesus say? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, keep my commandments and prove your love. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and so what Paul's doing here is he, as he mentions circumcision as being nothing, is he's rejecting the externality of religious expression. By the way, it's precisely the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees back in Matthew twenty-three. Just listen to this: He spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, and he said. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. (laughs) For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. You know how convicting that is to me as a pastor? That every word that comes out of my mouth as I am teaching, I cannot tie up heavy burdens without being willing to lift. I can't ask people to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So one thing I can tell you that makes teaching through the Bible a little difficult. Because now i got to deal with this. I can't just tell you and then go home and do my own thing. And Jesus says that is a pharisaical problem. It is a superficial religious problem to prescribe certain behaviors or attitudes, but then you don't do it. That's what the Pharisees were up to. External religion. Down in verse 13 of Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He says in verse 15, listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, that is, one converted person, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus knew how to bring it. And He brought it to the Pharisees. The Bible teaches, even Torah law clearly teaches that circumcision of the flesh and not the heart doesn't even scratch the surface. All the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses said, "...the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live." As Jerusalem is coming apart around 600 to 580 B.C., Jeremiah the prophet, he said, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Because you see, even at that time, they were removing the foreskin of the flesh, but the heart was hard against the Lord. Paul says circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Nothing. Paul said this to the church at Rome. Some of you may recall Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. What did Moses say? If you live by the law, you're going to die by the law. My friends, what this is getting at is that calling, the invitation of God, is more than skin deep. It is way more than religious observances, church attendance, Bible memorization. Church attendance is great. Bible memorization is wonderful to feed the Spirit. But if the heart is not there, we got a big problem. And the second time now of three times, Paul repeats this statement in verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you a butcher? A baker? Candlestick maker? When you accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ, stay there. You don't have to immediately change your position. You are where you are on assignment from God. That is to be indigenous, incarnational bringers of the invitation. Wherever you're at. Paul says in Colossians 2.6, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Are you a stay-at-home parent? A refinery worker? A teacher? A retiree? A student? Where are you right now? Listen, God has called you out to call you in. He's called you out. He's invited you to call you in to incarnational, indigenous ministry in the world and you are on assignment wherever you are. Now Paul moves on to an even more radical example than circumcision and this one really would have cut to the heart. Pun intended. The second example. Slavery. Verse 21. Were you called while a slave. Now, this may not seem as relevant today, but you need to understand at the time when Paul wrote this to Corinth, in Rome, some 60 million people were slaves. You know what the population of Rome was at that time? 120 million. Half the population was enslaved to the other half. That's a massive, for every two people, one was a slave. And when Paul says this, were you called while a slave, he'd be talking to at least half the assembled church. And they would all understand this. And this is remarkably stunning what he says here. Were you called while a slave, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Now understand the slavery might not have been exactly what you might think. A lot of it was indentured servitude. You know, there might be a a high-class, world-class musician in Rome, but was a slave to the elite. Different aspects of indentured servitude, but slavery nonetheless. And he says, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. The phrase do that, kraomai, in the Greek is make use of it. Make use of it. I I like that because what Paul's saying is if you're a slave, don't stress it. If you can become free, make use of your freedom to be a slave of Christ. Use your freedom to head right back into bond servitude. Now understand this. Because this is this is big. If you were called while a slave, and the calling of slaves, no one else was calling slaves. God was calling slaves. And at that day and in that time, listen, for those who wonder today if Christianity can make a difference anymore, you look at our country especially, you look at America and say, it is failing fast. I was just sent a a DVD, I'm going to have to check this out, talking about the mass numbers of people exiting churches in America. It's it's, it's stirring, it's stunning. The church now, rather than being the impetus behind uh, uh, cultural and even political thought, now is set and shunned to the side, and people are departing right and left. And you read these things, and you see these things, and you think, I think we're on the downhill. I think we've done all we can do. And so you get discouraged. Listen, can Christianity ever make a difference in this country? Much more in, in the world Again? I say only where the called function as genuine, heart level, countercultural, radically transformational movement, led by the spirit. If we will function from the heart, let me explain this another way. You hear about grassroots movement, right? This is the grassroots. Uh, the Tea Party was a grassroots movement, wasn't it? And for a few months, even a few years there, people were real excited about this grassroots movement. Hey, this is of the people, by the people, for the people. And it's not really having the influence now that people thought it would. Because movements of man never do. we got to go beyond grassroots. We've got to get down into the soil. The soil of the heart. And this is the beauty of the invitation of God Is He invites the heart He goes right past the flesh And straight into the place where it matters You want to know if Christianity can have a radical impact on America again That revival can come It absolutely can If people are willing to receive Jesus into the heart And then to function out of the heart With genuine faith And not with external religion I think the worst thing that's happened to the church in America is the externality of religion. That has killed the work of the church because people look at it on the outside and they say, that is superficial, why would I want that? And Jesus calls to the heart. Think about it, put it Put it in context. A master and a slave both get saved. Their hearts called and changed. They come into the fellowship at Corinth. They look across the room and they see each other. And for the first time, master and slave both realize they're brothers. Think about the impact of that. In a culture where half the people were slaves to the other half. God was the only one who was doing this. The only one who was laying out equality among all people in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in verse 22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman." Hey, the world may externally say you're a slave. Guess what? You're free. You are free in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your position on earth, regardless of your circumstance. And then he says, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You have just flipped your position. Everything's changed. How does this work? Slave and master are now on equal footing. Both are free in Christ. Both are slaves to Christ. Do you live that way? Free in Christ? but a slave of Christ. Matthew Henry wrote it this way. He said, Man's outward condition does neither hinder nor promote their acceptance with God. Though he be not discharged from his master's service, the slave is freed from the dominion and the vassalage of sin. Though he be a free man, yet he is bound to give himself up wholly to his pleasure. That is Jesus' pleasure and service. And then Henry says this, The favor of God is not bound. The favor of God coming into Greco-Roman culture in the first century was not bound to the elite. It was for everybody. And again, no religion was doing that. No social institution was offering that. Jesus comes along and he, he flips the world's concept of freedom completely upside down and says, oh, you are invited to be free in Christ, but purchased as his bond slaves. Verse 23. You were bought with a price. This is now the second time Paul has said this. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And what a price was paid for those who would recoil at the idea of being a slave of Jesus. Think about the price. Acts twenty verse twenty-eight tells us we were purchased with His own blood. Titus two fourteen tells us He gave Himself. For us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people, listen, for his possession, zealous for good deeds. First Peter 1 with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation 5:9, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, across the board, that's the invitation. That is the calling of God. And because of this price, because we were bought, my friends, the church cuts across every divide. There is no truly no division in the church of Jesus Christ. When a person accepts the call, the invitation of Jesus... It's about real change, not superficial change. You don't go from slave to master. You know, from downtrodden to elite. You're changed internally. And it affects your behavior, absolutely, but it's more than that. It's a calling, again, that is indigenous and incarnational. That alters your worldview. A change that is best lived out right where you are. Verse 24 brethren he says now the third time each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called or in that in which he was called let me be really clear about this he is not talking about a sin condition and some have actually read it that way if you go back to verse 20 each man must remain in that condition in which he was called well I was living with her when I was called a Christian so I'm just going to go on living with her no that's sin and what's remarkable is when you are called by God and you are born again, suddenly the lifestyle that was a sin lifestyle before becomes abhorrent to you. You want to get away from it as far as you possibly can. Nobody who's been truly born again can stomach their previous sin condition. Paul's not saying that. He's saying just stay in the place socially where you were when you were called. Remain, and he says this note in verse 24, with God. Remain with God in that condition in which you were called. In that place in which you were called. With God. Now what does he mean when he says remain in that condition in which you were called? I find this interesting. The word condition is the same as the word called. It is calling. Literally, Paul writes, each man must remain in the calling in which he was called. You need to remain in the invitation in which you were invited. Now again, go back to this concept of slavery. Christianity in the first century was absolutely radical. And I don't think we fully grasp that here today 2,000 years later. Because in the first century, in the Hellenistic world, social status was everything. Everything was divided up by class. You had Jew, Greek, Roman, Scythian, Barbarian, Slave, Free, Male, Female, Elite, Peasant. Class warfare. Class distinction, which seems to be where America's trying to go. The 1% versus the middle class. Oh, we got to help the middle class as if we have something that the middle class doesn't have. Christianity doesn't work that way deep divisions in our culture right now along racial lines that I wouldn't have seen coming political divisions and religious divisions and the American experiment, listen it began with the concept of the church and what's that concept? everybody is free in Christ and everybody is a bond slave of Christ total equality at the foot of the cross and it doesn't matter what you do or who you are or your quote-unquote station in life doesn't make any difference. You are called to Jesus, which makes us family. And as a family, called by Jesus, man, whatever your position, you're a doctor, continue to be a doctor for Jesus. You're a ship builder, continue to build boats for Jesus. Whatever your condition, do it. But now you have a reason for doing it. Now you've got an invitation to offer. And it's completely different. So here comes this, this thing. People start to call it the way. Some people call it the ecclesia. Some people call them little Christ because they're all running around claiming Jesus. But the church of the first century was unlike anything else that had happened. Bible tells us, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Around 29 AD, this Galilean rabbi comes along and manages to revolutionize the world. Note this, he didn't do it through rallies and conventions, as we are seeing in our current political season. That's not how you change the country. And he didn't do it by raising up a massive army. That's what Muhammad did. Force teaching what He believed, and the lies that He brought. No, Jesus did it by reaching to the heart of the individual person. I still marvel at that. We all sit here this morning, and you know what's interesting to me is every single one of us are like one-on-one with God. We are a called assembly of people, and yet, when you think about it, when we're studying or when we're worshiping, don't you forget for a moment... Until someone coughs right behind you and you're like, oh dude. But don't you forget? And suddenly you're working this out with Jesus and you're with Him and you're you're worshiping Him and you're thinking about Him and you're impacted by what His Word is telling you, and you almost forget that there's someone two seats over who's having the exact same experience. Because that's how Jesus works. It grabs hold of your heart. He goes one-on-one with the individual. And the church was the only place in all the Roman world where status made no difference. Where the calling of Jesus transcended race and class and social status and even gender. No difference. What does the Bible tell us? Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and you've put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In which there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave, and free man. There's a Mike Freeman, but there's not you know no difference. But Christ is all and in all. And if you can, just for a moment this morning, grasp how absolutely otherworldly and radical the invitation of Jesus was to this people. And the reason we need to grasp it right now is because, as I said, we are headed back the same direction in the world today. Where Christianity... And the true, genuine heart call of Jesus is unlike anything offered on the planet. It is a radical thing, this invitation that we've been given. So wild, so unique, so, again, otherworldly, that honestly, all we have to do is share the Gospel to shake a life. To see a heart changed. So the only issue in the church then and today, the single unifying factor of all of us, is whether or not a person accepts the call, the invitation of Christ on their life. Have you? Ask yourself this morning, have you really accepted the invitation to the heart? The Lord would say to you this morning if you've been kind of just skipping along the surface come on into relationship. Come on close. Come on deep. We were talking about in prayer this morning how how amazing worship is because in that place we proclaim worship to God and He brings it right back to us. We're talking about the 24 elders and casting their crowns. Right? But it's a perpetual thing. Do you realize that? In, in Revelation chapter 5 that That every time the the creatures, the cherubim, say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Every time they do that, the elders cast their crowns and worship before the Lord. Well, it seems to me that once you've cast your crown, it's pretty much cast, right? So what's happening? Apparently their crowns are being returned to them to be cast again. Worship, blessing. Worship, blessing. It goes back and forth. And Jackie said it this morning. What happens when you go to hug somebody? You get hugged. When you go to embrace somebody, unless they're cold and superficial and heartless, think about that when someone comes to hug you this morning. <laughs> You go to embrace somebody, what happens to you? You get embraced. You embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and He wraps His big arms around you and He draws you in. That's what you're invited to. To be embraced and loved in a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing like it in this or any culture. And that's our invitation. It's our calling. I want to give you one last example of what this looks like I think in a practical way. There was a man, uh, small of stature, straining for status. You could call him a real social climber, or at least a real tree climber. You know his name, Zacchaeus. And Jesus invited himself over to the house of this man, gave himself an invitation to come to Zacchaeus' home. This is in Luke chapter 19, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When he saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he probably had, he says, if I have defrauded anyone, I will give back four times as much. That was prescribed in Jewish law. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus. But here's the thing. He was called, invited to his own house, compelled by the love of Christ to pay back, to make, to make things right. And he was changed. Immediately he stops to defraud people, he sought to make amends. He commits to giving to the poor extravagantly. However, the one thing, understand that Zacchaeus did not stop doing, at least as far as we know, was tax collecting. The Bible doesn't tell us to quit his job. And I believe he didn't. He just went back and did it for Jesus. Can you imagine that in the first century? Slave and the master, circumcised, uncircumcised, tax collector and zealot. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot, and they were disciples together of Jesus among the apostles. A life changed right where he was. Zacchaeus didn't have to move out of town. He didn't have to change scenery. He didn't even have to change jobs. All he had to do was function with a changed heart. That's what Jesus does. And He calls you, calls me. Remain in the calling in which you have been called. Whatever that situation is. Married? Stay there. Remain in that condition. As I said Wednesday night, fight for it. But it's hard, Rick. I know. But God has called you and Jesus is changing your heart and can change hers or his as well. Stick it out. Fight for it. Stay with him. Stay in that condition in which you were called. Marriage is a godly thing even if it feels ungodly at times. Are you divorced? Paul would say, look, stay there. Don't try to change things. Don't try to go back. Don't try to just, just remain in the condition in which you were called with a heart changed by Jesus. Are you single? Don't worry about it. Don't stress it. God will show you. Circumcised, uncircumcised, slave free, male, female, Scythian. Let His invitation sanctify your condition. Father, I I so needed to hear this again today. To be sanctified right where I am. Changed in heart, not just in outward stuff. And Father, You have said to me and shown me again and again not to rush in and make everything different superficially, but to wait. To wait on the Lord. Your invitation is what changes us, not our position. Lord, I pray, pour out Your invitation. Send it out this morning. Some need to respond to the invitation and just say, Yes, Lord, I want more of a genuine relationship. I've been walking on a super, superficial plane. Draw my heart. Some may today for the first time want to give their hearts to You, Lord. I pray that they will not be held back. Oh, Jesus, call us to be a people of changed hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together